0: This is a faithful saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, good morning and thanks for tuning in. We're beginning a new series today and I'm not sure if I mentioned that last week but uh, to start the new year we are uh, rounding up our or finishing up our proverb study and beginning a new study in the book of Romans and so today we're going to open the book of Romans and we're just going to do kind of an overview and maybe work our way into chapter 1 uh if time permits but I'm really looking forward to studying this book with you it's a very difficult book, or at least it can be. It's it's often misused uh, a, a lot, and there's just so much here. You know, 16 chapters, it's a very thorough and comprehensive look at, at the gospel, and there's just so much to talk about and so much to learn here. So I'm looking forward to studying it with you. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, you know, as we get started here, Paul is going to really state the main theme of the book pretty early on in the intro here, Uh, to the book of Romans, and that comes in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're going to see these key ideas uh, pop up over and over again uh, throughout the different movements, if you will, uh, for the book. There's really four main phases of the book, uh, but each of them surround this main idea here that we see in verses 16 and uh, 17, where Paul says that, "...I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, so, those uh, ideas there in verses 16 and 17, the righteousness of God, the gospel being the power of God as it reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith, that's the main idea of this. Book of Romans and that Paul is going to uh, be elaborating on as we as we move forward, and so as I mentioned, I just kind of want to glimpse the forest before we focus on the trees. You get the big picture, the broad overview of the themes and messages of this uh, very rich and often misused letter. I think that's going to help us keep. The words that you know, as we go from chapter to chapter in the coming weeks, I think getting the broad overview first is going to help us keep Paul's words in context as we start focusing on individual chapters in the in the book of Romans. As I mentioned, there's four main points I think that we're going to see developed throughout this book, and it divides the the book divides pretty neatly um, for four chapters, basically for every main point. So Paul's big point here. Uh, from the outset and throughout the whole book, again, is that the gospel is the power of uh, God for salvation, to bring salvation to everyone who believes, and it reveals His righteousness. And Paul is going to develop that thought uh, in the first four chapters of God's righteousness, and I'll, I'll have more to say about that in just a moment, but just let me mention briefly that when Paul says, in that context, God's righteousness, that the gospel reveals God's righteousness, he's not talking about God's Personal righteousness. Uh, so it's true that God is righteous, and um, He does have a righteousness that His as His own. But when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, He's talking about uh, the righteousness that belongs to God that He is offering to mankind, so that mankind can be righteous before Him. Um, so we're gonna have more to say about that. But just moving forward here, you know, you know we should understand that. The gospel reveals God's righteous righteousness in that it reveals how we can be righteous before him. Uh, and that's how it's used in chapter 10 and a number of other places as well. And then Paul goes on to develop from chapter 4 onward uh, about how the gospel saves and renews people. So it's powerful to bring salvation, but it also is transformative. It, it gives new life on the basis of faith in it. In believing it, and and we'll have more to say about that keyword and idea as well. Faith. What is biblical faith? Uh, how how does it, what you know? What is its relationship to the gospel, and how does that make the gospel a catalyst then for transforming us, or renewing us, and changing us um, into God's the image of His uh, God's Son? Uh, and then next, in chapters nine through eleven, or so, in that section of the book. Paul is going to describe how the gospel uh is fulfilling his ancient promises, God's ancient promises to his people. And you, you know, we're going to see as we move in through the first 8 chapters how the gospel is God's power for salvation and it was his plan all along to send his son into the world to save people who believed in him and obeyed him. Uh, that might leave a lot of questions in the minds of, and it did in the minds of a, a lot of Hebrews, um, you know, physical ancestry of, of Abraham. Well, then what was the point of the old law and all these promises that we see here? And has God rejected us? Uh, and so Paul goes into answering those questions and others in in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And then finally, in the, in the more, uh, I guess, uh, practical part of the book, the the final chapters, verses 12 through 15, Sixteen, as, as he's signing off there, he's going to talk about how the gospel is powerful also to unify uh, the church there and, and what the implications are now for Christians in, in Rome and really everywhere, right? Because this book is wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And so Paul is going to, to describe what the implications are. What does it look like now uh, what, in this transformed life? And, and what should we be doing specifically in, in a local church? Beginning in chapter twelve, so uh, so that's kind of the broad overview, and uh, and now let's uh, go and, and get a little bit closer in on uh, like the historical context, get a get a better view and idea of the historical context, and maybe some key passages within each of these texts. So remember in Acts chapter eighteen, uh, there's a. Uh, uh, a point made there about Emperor Claudius in, in Rome, and he decides that he wants all the Jews to leave, and so he gives this this order, this edict, and and expels basically everyone who's Jewish, eth- ethnically Jewish, from, from Rome. And this is in the context of Paul, actually, when he's at, at Corinth, and he meets two uh, Roman, Jewish Roman Christians, and that's Aquila and Priscilla and so it says in in Acts chapter 18 verses 1 and 2 that after these things he left Athens that's Paul Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews, um, all the Jews, to leave Rome, and so uh, by providence, uh, Paul comes into contact with these other brethren, Priscilla and Aquila, and they're going to begin working together in Corinth as tent makers, uh, and also spreading the gospel as he's establishing the church there in, in Corinth. But I just mentioned that uh, because that that part of the story plays into uh, and helps us understand. Uh, some of the things that are happening in the letter to the Romans, because five years after Acts eighteen, uh, Emperor Claudius allows the Jews to to return, and so the church then in Rome is is affected by by all of this, um, because it was largely composed of of Gentiles. If you look in Romans chapter one and you read around verse uh, eleven or so, and other passages as as well, we get some insight into um, this church as far as its. Uh, um, Ethnic makeup, and uh, this doesn't. And, and Paul's point will be throughout this letter and, and others as well, specifically Galatians, uh, that you know there's there's no Jew or Greek in, in Jesus Christ, but and there's no partiality with with God. However, some of these ethnic differences and cultural differences were um, uh, the the members were allowing those things to create tension within the church, and. Uh, Paul writes in Romans a good bit there towards the end of the book, as I mentioned, about the unifying power of the gospel, how they can get over those things, things that are just not essential to serving God uh, and being uh, effective workers in, in his kingdom. He's going to address those, um, those issues in, in this letter. But, but we see and we get the idea that Gentiles composed a big part of, of the church here in Rome. It says in verse 11, "...for I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. And that is that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine." And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as the rest of the Gentiles. And uh, that, I think, shows us, especially the of verse 13, that in Paul's mind, uh, in reality, not just in his mind, but he he knew that the church was composed largely of, of Gentiles, not exclusively, because he's got a lot of uh, things that he's going to address to uh, Jewish Christians in in this in this letter, but the church here was made up of largely of Gentiles, and so there's this tension between these returning Jewish brethren, um, you know, after that five year period, and the Gentiles now, uh, and Paul is is writing, even though he's never personally. Uh, visited these brethren, right? He says, I- "I've been planning to come to you for a long time. I've been prevented up to this point, but he's hoping to come. He's never personally met uh, these Christians. He has met Priscilla and Aquila, but not anybody else in, in the Roman Church. And so he's he's design. He wants to encourage them through this letter to unity. He wants to prepare them for his intended visit." Uh, because he says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. He wants he says, I, I said says, he says that I want you to be established uh, and, and encouraged. Uh, and he wants to prove again the unifying power of, of the gospel. So throughout throughout this letter, that's going to be his repeated emphasis is that again, the gospel is God's plan for salvation. to all people, it is sufficient. It's it's wholly sufficient for salvation. It's wholly sufficient to unify you, to uh, to to uh, um, and encourage you, and and win others for for Christ. Uh, and this is for for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. He he wastes no time. You know, we saw in verse sixteen uh, where he declares that the gospel is God's power for salvation. He says it's for the Jew first, and, and also for the Greek, and that's just a. a, a a weird phrasing, a a, a phrasing that sounds weird to us, I should say, but Paul is just uh, communicating that there's no precedent here. The gospel was delivered to the Jews first, and Jesus went to his own people first, but now it's being delivered to the Gentiles, and that was God's plan all along, uh, was that there wouldn't be this, uh, you know, these ethnic divisions within, um, you know, or among among his people. But... Paul goes into this survey of of all humanity and he's declaring, you know, if there's any doubt in our minds as to whether or not Paul has some bias or partiality, uh, he says no, and God doesn't uh, either. And Romans 3.23 he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And so his point is all are guilty of, of sin, thus all need the saving power of the gospel. There, and there is no partiality with, with God, he says in Romans 2 and verse 11. So all Jews and all Gentiles, that includes me and you, we need the saving power of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection as it's revealed in the gospel. That's what makes the gospel powerful. Without Jesus, because it's about Jesus, and without Jesus there is no gospel, there's no good news, there's no hope, There's there's no grace. But the gospel reveals Jesus Christ and it reveals God's righteousness that is from faith. And so um, let's take a moment to understand what the Bible says about just righteousness in general and how Paul is using it in this, in this context here because that's, this is a major theme of, of the book. And so nailing that down again will help us as we move forward in, in looking at these individual uh, chapter, so what is this key word righteousness and how how is Paul using it here it's it's used so many times throughout scripture and depending on your translation, uh, righteousness can be rendered as just or justified or justification because uh, all of those words come from the same root. righteous and just they they share the same root in the original language, and so depending on your Bible and depending on your Bible translation. Uh, you know, it might say righteousness, or it might say just or justification, uh, but the idea is that when it's used of God, is that He is unchangeably righteous and just, and that He always does what is good and right, and and this includes being faithful to fulfill all of His all of His promises. And, and God and and Paul highlights both of these aspects of God's character. Uh, of God's righteousness specifically uh, in Romans 3.26 when he says that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for sin to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So that he would uh, look at this so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, So Paul is saying Jesus came and lived as a man. He died for the sins of all so that everybody could have the opportunity to become just as he is. So that they could be justified, so that they could be righteous, so that they could be holy and blameless before God. That's what makes the gospel so powerful because it reveals that truth. And, and not only that truth, but shows us how to follow through with it and, and what obedience to it looks like and how to be more like uh, God's Son. You know, I love what Jude says here at the end of... I'm going to throw in this verse from from Jude. Uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude 1, But it's near the end of his book. But this this also speaks to, again, the, the power of of Christ that is revealed in, in the gospel uh, and how it can work in us. It, Jude says, "...to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory... Blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, and dominion. But I, I wanted to bring that into this, this study as we make this point about uh, God being the justifier and, and is able to make us righteous and justified, uh, because you know, it, it echoes this passage in Romans that, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to make us stand in His presence. Totally blameless, totally justified before God. And you think about it. Think about all the, the things that we've done wrong, all the sin that's in our past. God is able, through Jesus Christ, to take that all away. And we can be purified. We can be holy. We can be righteous. And Paul reinforces this again in chapter 4 when he says that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life. For our justification. And again, depending on your Bible, it might say for our, our righteousness. Right. And the idea is, again, to justify us, to make us righteous. And so that's that's Romans 4.25, if I didn't say that already. And so that's that's the idea when Paul is saying that the gospel is revealing God's righteousness. He doesn't mean, again, God's personal righteousness, but he's talking about God's plan for righteousness in, in man, to make man justified, righteous before him that that's our word justification, which literally means to declare to declare righteous so the the point is the same as before that because of Jesus's sacrifice for our sins, we have an opportunity to be declared righteous, to be justified, to be right before God, or in a right relationship with God, to have fellowship with him, and what Jesus did gives people a chance to have that new status, to have that new identity, be part of his family, conform to his character in anticipation of his return. And that's what he can do. He can, he can transform us. In a word, that's what he does. He transforms a person's life and is able to deliver us in final judgment so long as we remain in him. And that's something that Paul touches on in Romans chapter 8 in verse 1 he, he opens that chapter by saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for those who are in Christ Jesus and else we learn how how it is that we be that we come into him that is that we be, that we come into a right relationship with him and have fellowship with him that is through submission surrender to his gospel obedience we might say to his gospel in repentance and faith and baptism and confessing our faith in him and that's what Paul goes on to explain he's he's explaining that the basis for this this new identity this new hope in Christ and and this transformation the basis for all of that is faith and he in chapter 4 he holds up his his very first example of that and that's Abraham and so he goes into this Discussion of Abraham as an example of faith showing that Abraham was justified or declared righteous by God before the law of Moses was ever delivered and before even Abraham was circumcised because, you know, those are those are big Jewish things, right? And so he's um, he's he's calling those things out and, and he'll have more to say in chapter 7 about the purpose of the law of Moses and that it is good and that it is important. But ultimately it, it is faith it is belief in and surrender to and obedience to God uh, that we are allowed that, that allows us to be justified in Christ. And so in chapter four, I'm just gonna read um verses nine through twelve here of Romans chapter four. It says that is the blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. And so Paul says circumcision a whole lot in that in that text. But ultimately his point is is that it doesn't that it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, he'll say in First Corinthians seven that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but we're, what matters is keeping the commandments of God. And so that's ultimately his point here with Abraham as well. That yes, Abraham was. He was declared righteous, but that was by his faith, not simply because he was circumcised, not simply because he obeyed the law of Moses. The law of Moses hadn't even been delivered yet. Right? Moses would come 400 years later. And so Paul's point is is that whatever dispensation we are living, whatever time we're living, whether you're talking about before the law of Moses, during the law of Moses, after the law of Moses, as, as in now, during the Christian age, if you will, uh, we're all amenable to the law of Christ. We're all called to faith belief in and trust in and surrender to God and his will through Jesus Christ and and through that we can be declared righteous just as just as Abraham was so Abraham is is the father as Paul says of all those who share the same faith in God that he had and this new family then is is composed of both Jews and Gentiles not just not just physical genetic descendants of Abraham but any and all who are going to believe as Abraham believed God and submit to him in the same way that Abraham did that's his point there if you if you keep reading verses 16 through uh, 25 for this reason it is by faith and in order that it may be in accordance with grace so the promise will be guarant- guaranteed to all descendants and Galatians 3 29 also uh, Paul is making the same point uh, but another way Paul makes this point is to draw a contrast between Adam and, and Jesus. That that death reigned because of Adam until Moses, in, in chapter 5 and verse 14, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And so just as Adam's action had consequences for the rest of humanity, who would imitate him by sinning, so too does Jesus' life have consequences for all who are going to imitate him by, by faith. And so this you know, this carries over from chapter 4 uh, in, in, in holding up the example of Abraham as, as faith who is justified before God. And, and Paul is again saying in, in a different way, again, by faith we will be justified. We don't have to live under the, the reign of death that, that Adam uh, brought in. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Paul will refer to Jesus as the, the last Adam who became a, a life-giving spirit. Maybe that's in this text. I can't remember if it's in this text or in Corinthians. But at any rate, he makes the contrast in, in more than one place. And so, the again, the idea is verse 19 uh, of chapter 5, that through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. And there's that idea again, righteousness, justification. Through Jesus' obedience is not that. It's just been taken care of by default, you know, because that would miss the point of the previous two chapters. No, it's it's by faith in Jesus. Through his obedience, even to the point of death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2, we can we can be made righteous when we choose to submit to him in, in faith. And so that takes us into the next chapter, chapter 6, when Paul says when someone is baptized into Christ, that they're baptized into his death, and they're raised to walk in newness of life. There's that transformation. We become a new creature. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, or rather uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. We're, we're no longer identified with, again, Adam and the spiritual death that that reigns in his posterity because, as Paul said, all made the choice to sin, even if it wasn't in the same way that Adam sinned. Sin is sin and it brings for death, Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. And so we can be new creatures in Christ with new spiritual life because we are now united with Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, in that discussion about baptism. Baptism kind of gets a bad rep in in the religious world a lot today uh, because it's usually couched in terms of uh, a work of merit. But uh, the Bible nowhere calls Baptism a work of merit, or describes it as earning salvation in any way. It's it's here in in this context of Romans and elsewhere, uh, counts in terms of submission and faith as an act of faith uh, and being baptized into the the death of Christ, verse 3, so that we can be united with Him in the likeness of His death, verse 5. If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Uh, and, and so baptism is not just a, a symbol, it's an act of obedience, it's an act of submission in which we are raised to walk in newness of life, in which we are united with Christ in the likeness of His death, right? Because there's that picture of death, burial, and resurrection in, in, in baptism. So there's certainly some symbols involved in it, but it's not merely uh, symbolic, is Paul's point. Paul wants us to understand that the, this new life is marked by works of righteousness and not continuing in the sins of of the old life. That's how he begins that chapter. He says, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? And then he goes on to describe how we died to sin initially. And then in chapter 8, he's going to talk about how we continue to die to sin, how we continue to put the works of the flesh to death. Um, And initially, it's it's through baptism, is his point. Uh, and so all of this you, you know, would lead into the, the next chapters in which Paul is going to answer some Jewish questions about the law and their identity. Uh, because this would lead some to ask, if this, if this was God's plan all along, then why did he deliver the law of Moses to begin with? right? If it, if it was all pointing to Jesus and we were all just waiting for Christ to come into the world, to save us, then why the law to begin with? And Paul answers this question in chapter 7. Uh, at least beginning in chapter 7 how the law of God was given to expose sin for what it is verse 13 so that sin would be exceedingly sinful and also to, to show man's utter failure to keep such a law that by no amount of law keeping can anyone be justified because we're always going to fail whether it's the law of Moses or whether it's the law of, of Christ we're, we're going to continue to come up short we don't have to but the point remains that, that we will and so we always need the grace of God offered through Jesus Christ. And so that's the good news that Paul comes back to. He points out at the end of chapter 7, as he's using himself as an example, he says, you know, I I want to do the right thing, but I, I keep messing up, essentially. That's my paraphrase. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he explains how through Jesus, Christians can be freed from sin and continue to be free from sin and death and can overcome their carnality in, in chapter eight and overwhelmingly conquer despite suffering and despite persecution and so in this um, Paul answers uh, many of the questions that the Jews would have well, what was the point and and what's our status now and he continues to do that through through chapter 11 and he shows them how god hasn't rejected them in any in any way but that it's quite the opposite that it's israel and god's people are now defined by those who have faith in christ and anybody can anybody can be a part of that including those who are physically descended from from abraham as well as those who aren't that's the wonderful truth that anyone can be part of this new covenant and so in the remaining chapters paul says that the only reasonable response to to, to all of this for Jews and Gentiles uh, who obey the gospel, who become Christians, is to is to love one another, to use their gifts to build up one another and submit to all authority in chapter 13 uh, and be at peace with all men. And in so doing, they can be unified on the gospel of Christ. So there's there's so much more to say about this tremendous, uh, daunting epistle. I, I look forward to studying with you in the coming weeks. We're out of time this morning. I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org for more information. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.